So perhaps one of the things that's being highlighted for us in our scripture from Genesis this morning is that Joseph's brothers might still feel a little bit of guilt. What with the whole, you know, trying to kill him and selling him into slavery and treating him as horrible as any sibling could possibly treat one of their brothers. So they're looking for some reassurance. And even though they've been forgiven in Jacob's presence, now that Jacob is gone, they want to be reassured again. And so they go to Joseph and they concoct this story that Jacob's made this proclamation that Joseph's supposed to forgive them. And they're just trying to hedge their bets and make sure that they are going to be taken care of and Joseph isn't going to treat them horribly now that Jacob's gone. They're looking for reassurance. They need to be reassured that they have been forgiven. You know, we need to be reassured that we are forgiven too. It's something that we happen to be reassured of. Oh, I don't know, every week in worship, we're reassured of God's forgiveness for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a reminder for us that no matter how much we screw up, God loves us no matter what. Well, we do need that reassurance. It's why we have that reassurance in our worship every single week. It's why sometimes when we have wronged someone or when we feel we're in need of reassurance of forgiveness from someone else, we seek out that reassurance. Sometimes I think it takes speaking those words out loud. I forgive you. I think it's rare, actually, sometimes that we hear those exact words, I forgive you. We'll often hear something like, oh, it's all right, or no big deal, or one of my personal favorites and my go-tos, oh, no worries. But what assurance might we be able to offer those who are coming to us with the question of forgiveness by using those exact words when we're offered an apology? I forgive you. Try saying it out loud. Say it out loud to yourself. Say it with me right now. I forgive you. Hear those words and how they sound in your mouth and maybe consider using those words a little bit more often. I forgive you. I think those words matter. Words matter all of the time, just like the words of our apologies matter. You know, There's a difference between an apology that says, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. An apology that says, well, I'm sorry if you were offended. You can hear the difference in those two, right? Our words make a difference. When we need forgiveness, as Joseph's brothers needed forgiveness, we have to choose our words with care and with caution. And we have to be sure our attitudes and our actions align with those words. Our attitudes and our actions have to make a lasting impression so that our words are trusted. Joseph's brothers were overwhelmed with guilt and fear because they weren't so sure that they could trust Joseph's words. They'd not been truthful with their words in telling Joseph's father their story and in the things that they did to harm Joseph. So because they couldn't trust their own words, they weren't so sure if they could trust Joseph either. 
the brother's understanding of justice was the Hebrew understanding of justice in the words of reciprocity, an eye for an eye, you do for me as I do for you. Joseph would do to his brothers what they had done to him, especially now in the absence of their father. But Joseph teaches them a different means of forgiveness. He's introducing them to a forgiveness that brought about reconciliation, a forgiveness that produced both reconciliation and justice. See, the fruit of forgiveness is reconciliation. Forgiveness is the words and the mindset. Reconciliation is the state of being that results, where Joseph provides for the needs of his brothers and the entirety of everyone in his family. His actions show that forgiveness is more than the words that are spoken and the harmful deeds that are wiped away. It's a change in the situation and the circumstances that proves that forgiveness is going to be permanent and genuine, that it will last longer than the circumstances of that moment. We've been hoping to explore scriptures and stories and things that provide us comfort in our worship services for the next few weeks. For we're certainly living in a time when comfort might be a little harder to come by than usual. The uncertainty of our days brings us anxiety, not knowing what life will look like tomorrow or next week or next month is tough for many of us. So I want to ask you, what would it mean for us to find comfort in this scripture? What is comforting to you about knowing that even when others intend us harm, God intends good? So please don't hear me say that when bad things happen, it's all a part of God's plan. I and you might with me, I know I struggle with the image of a God that acts like some kind of a puppeteer who is arranging our lives with some good things and some bad things, who thinks to God's self, hmm, life's a little bit dull right now. Maybe I'll put in a little hill or a challenge or something that will maybe be seen as a bit of an adventure. No, thank you. Not right now, especially not right now. That's that's not helpful, I don't think. That's not the God that I worship. The nuance, I think, is that even when bad things happen, when others are intending harm for us, that God's not leaving us alone. And God is able to take the harm that's been intended to us, that's able to use the bad and turn it into something good. So all we have to do is look around at the world right now and we can see some pretty decent examples of that even right here in our congregation, right here on our campus here at Northminster. We're feeding hungry people. We're working to make different versions of personal protective equipment to give to people who need it. We're sending cards to residents of congregant care facilities who are lonely and who can't receive visitors. There's other examples of good things going on. One of my favorite television shows, The Office, has an actor, John Krasinski, who is doing this great thing in the midst of these quarantine days. 
He has a weekly show that he puts up on YouTube called SGN. It stands for Some Good News. And if you're someone who looks at things on the internet and has the ability to do so, I highly recommend going and checking it out. Each week, he crafts all kinds of stories and experiences that represent the good that's going on in the world despite us fighting this global pandemic. Some of the stories are offered to him about things that are already going on, and then he uses his celebrity superpowers to bring together things and make great things happen. I highly encourage you to check it out, and you might want to have a tissue or two handy, because sometimes the good news is so great it might even bring about a tear. Last week, the news and the social media were overrun with stories about Ahmad Arbery. 25-year-old black man who was shot and killed in a South Georgia neighborhood by two white men. And those two white men were not immediately arrested despite the fact that there was video of the shooting. The story brought about a significant amount of shock and outrage and a massive campaign across the internet and social media that was seeking justice for Ahmad's family. On what would have been Ahmad Arbery's 26th birthday, there were thousands of posts of people who were running 2.23 miles with the hashtag run with Ahmad, calling for justice and praying that arrests would be made. However you feel about the specific details of the story, it was hard to avoid knowing about that last week. I think that we can state without too much argument that there was harm intended in that situation. The question that we get to ask ourselves right now is, how will God use that intended harm and create good? What good could possibly come from an unspeakable tragedy, such as someone losing their life unnecessarily? Perhaps The good that comes is the opening of eyes and the softening of hearts and the beginning of conversations around race and prejudice and oppression. Perhaps the good that comes is a move beyond posts on social media that last for a short period of time, past prayers of solidarity and prayers for peace and justice that are spoken once and soon forgotten, and a move towards action, a move towards studying the structures of privilege and power and white supremacy in the hopes of dismantling the broken systems that are in place that help to bring about that tragedy in the first place. I do believe that there is the possibility of good coming out of that tragedy. And I also believe that it's in God's intention for us to be a part of that good. So how will we respond? How will we learn about the structures in place like privilege and power and white supremacy? How will we move beyond the prayers for peace and solidarity and reconciliation that will only last for a short period of time before it's forgotten? And how will we work to dismantle white supremacy and oppression right here and right now? 
However we place ourselves in the story of God's goodness, we can't separate ourselves from God's providence. For the what we see and what we experience in the world as harm, God has a way of bringing it about as good. We may not be able to see the good in our time, or the good to come from harm may not feel so good to us right away. How we comprehend the totality of God's actions, God's will to take things that were meant for evil and meant for good is a process, and it's going to take some time. And we can't always see it in our time. It's part of our human condition that though we're created in the image of God, our understanding is limited. We're human and we sin. And there are people in the world who fail to see the divine image in others. And they are intent on hurt and harm. Even though we may know and confess that God will ultimately bring good out of evil, we're not given a license to excuse or to promote evil. Even though we may know and confess that God ultimately brings good out of evil, that also doesn't mean that genuine evil isn't going to be a part of our lives or a part of the lives of God's beloved children. And yet, God's beloved community is one where its inhabitants behave as though they believe that God can bring good out of anything, even and especially evil. There has to be faith in God's ability because God can see the future and we can't. God took something intended for evil and molded it into good, propelling the mission of God's beloved community. And that is the rock of our faith, that when things are bad, they're not going to stay that way. That we'll find God when we need God and finding God will turn things from bad to better and from evil to good. That doesn't mean that we can say that evil will never befall us if we love God. We absolutely cannot say that because those words don't carry truth or weight and words matter because evil is a part of the world and bad things happen to all of us. We've been hurt and we've hurt others and we all receive healing for what is on our hearts, whether we hurt ourselves or others have hurt us and forgiveness is an essential part of our story. As beloved children of God, we do need to receive forgiveness, and we need to offer forgiveness. And in our forgiveness, we need to promote reconciliation. We live with faith in God's providence regardless of our situation, knowing that God will bring good out of whatever may come our way. And we will live with attitudes of forgiveness and love and an attitude that motivates our thoughts and our words and our deeds and the whole of our very lives. When we live this way, we are powerful agents and citizens of God's beloved community, the place of goodness, of reconciliation, of healing, forgiveness, peace, and possibility. May this be so. Amen.